and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. 40-hour-long waits in A&E, nurses and paramedics striking over appalling working conditions and low pay, GP appointments only available by some mad 8am scramble on the phone and years-long waiting lists for routine treatment as the health service recovers from the pandemic. With the NHS in its worst state for decades, what future does it have? Afia Poco-Manfo is a researcher on health issues for the IPPR and she's here with me to discuss that and more. Hi Afia. Hi Hannah, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It's really great to join you today. We spoke last year when I was writing about um, private health and you told me something fascinating that actually shocked me a bit. Because it was so hard to access a GP during the lockdowns, the use of private medicine increased during the pandemic and that was particularly true for older people. And I guess that we might expect because they're both more likely to have the spare cash and more likely to suffer ill health. But also, and this is the bit that really surprised me, for younger people who are aged just between 18 and 25, what's happening here? Yeah, so our polling last year showed that 31%, so the equivalent of around like 16 million adults in Britain, uh, found it hard uh, to access the care that they needed during the pandemic. And then of those 16 million people, 12% said that they used some form of like paid for alternative care, and 26% said that they actively considered it. And of course, like, that those figures start to rise when you sort of, you know, sharply when you start to go up the income scale. And on young people aged sort of 18, 25 specifically, when we explored like how much confidence people had in the NHS, young people were more likely to have less confidence in the NHS. So this could partly be the result of them maybe like having less contact with the health service over their lifetime, also being triaged by overstretched services as being considered as less of a priority. But also like the fact that GP apps are an, you know, an easily sort of manageable cost, you know, they're operating from around £7 a month similar to any kind of sort of streaming website, you know, such as Netflix. So when you can, you know, consider all of that, then you can see how the accessibility of these services could become quite attractive to a young person. We also saw like similar trends, like when we polled um, people last summer, so like on where they source their like health information. And so whilst like the NHS website specifically was like still considered the most trusted source across ages. Alternative media, so like Reddit or social media, was higher among that age 18 to 25 age group. So it sort of shows that those sources of information and trust for traditional institutions are, are more varied among this demographic. Yeah, so they're, they're going to a different range of uh, yeah sources of expertise, I guess. But the price thing you mentioned there is really important, isn't it? I mean, it is quite cheap now. If you particularly want you know, a same day appointment or something, it's very easy to obtain. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the fact that what we need to consider is that like with most insurance, for, you know, not just health insurance, but if you opt in like at an early age with and you have minimal like health conditions, like you're more likely to get like a comprehensive like deal. So I think that's like an important factor to acknowledge, like when we're speaking about young people opting out and into the private healthcare schemes, we may think that like, you know, how on earth could young people sort of afford these schemes, but they're actually like a lot more accessible um, than we realise. Mm. So if more people are using private medicine, whether that's ad hoc or through insurance and so on, and they're able to get things done more quickly, like see a GP, don't we end up with a kind of two tier health system where, you know, those who can afford these increasingly small charges are, have a service that others can't simply can't access? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we're looking at like a two-tier health system in like any public service, then we're looking at stark inequalities. And like in the case of health, obviously that's really concerning as this will play into like life expectancy, your overall quality of life. And if there are like health inequalities, then we can see this sort of leak into our economy, our workforce and so on. So getting that sort of basic health provision right for all, sort of meaning, you know, universal free upon use, is like fundamental to a prosperous society. And it also means that healthcare, you know, must be available in a sort of safe and a reasonable time. So like our research, for example, showed that people were more likely to opt out if they had a non-emergency condition and were told to wait longer than 18 weeks to start their treatment. So all of these factors and, and more, you know, lead to people looking elsewhere for their healthcare. I guess I would say like a two-tier like system isn't unfamiliar to people in the UK. Mm. You know, we can look at like our education system where like the very best education is like sort of conditional on your ability to pay if that's like school fees or just, you know, paying for a house in a catchment area of an of an outstanding sort of local comprehensive school. But also like within like health and care, so like dentistry and social care, you know, we already kind of see a, a manifesting two-tier health system where people just simply don't go to the dentist. Or yeah. like in the case of social care, we've seen people removing equity from their homes if they have uh, an asset, um, removing equity to pay for their care, or maybe depending on family to provide unpaid care or just simply just like going without like the care and the provision that they need so I think like the concern for me is like two things so one being that like people who have the option to pay or to take out a loan when it comes to like urgent matters of their health when they've been waiting a long time like they they will pay um so there will be groups in our society who have options you know whilst not ideal they will be able to get that medical support and you know move forward with their lives but the concern is for who's left behind so if you could just like imagine the disparity between those who will pay and those who have no other option that gap just sort of expanding year on year is deeply worrying and then my second concern is that it's just like not sustainable at all so it's not just like people with a lot of wealth maybe we may have traditionally thought of private healthcare as as a luxury and people who have a lot more wealth will simply just pay and others won't and nothing happens and it just sort of remains static and some people will pay and others won't what we're actually seeing is like people at that middle income level taking like more financial risks um, such as loans as I mentioned um, to kind of look after their health and the health of their families and I think it's just like widely accepted that like if an issue is attended to early enough you know in health specifically you know the treatment that you may need uh, in the long term may be a longer or more costly type of treatment and so you know if people, as we know, people are getting poorer, people are getting sicker, you know, a two-tier health system essentially just, you know, will only make this worse. Absolutely. I mean, particularly around younger people and their attitudes, does the data that you were discussing suggest that, you know, young people do have a different view of healthcare overall and that they are just actually more comfortable with this two-tier system? Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, like, like, Broadly, like public satisfaction with the NHS has been declining year on year. I think like last year it sank to its lowest level since like the late 90s. And this dip has happened like quite significantly plummeted over the COVID years. And what I can say is that like we know for young people, like the expectations like around health and care have changed and continue to change. And what people expect from health and care is different to before. You know, so for young people,
people, I guess there is a combination of, of like health needs changing, but also like culture changing. You know, people expect services to keep up to date with like the technological shifts, like cultural attitudes. So like regarding maybe social justice and equality, you know, patients who are younger may, might just not just expect like clinical knowledge from the experts and, and the practitioners that they're working with, but also cultural knowledge. So like access to translation services, using like the correct language uh, across different identities. And so I think young people may have like yeah, higher expectations or a different standard of expectations. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think patient experience is really important and like a key part of like ensuring that young people engage with a system that's like there to look after them. So those changing attitudes, yeah, they, they do matter. And I guess they are part of a society that's like trying to modernise like an institution that was created, you know, 75 years ago. And obviously we want our, our institution to be the envy of the world and you know we often have heard it referred to I think in doing that it requires policymakers to sort of rise to some of those new challenges that are being presented by um, you know younger generations. Yes do you think politicians and policymakers have caught up with that change in attitude and that, that they understand that younger people actually expect more and as you say rightly so and, and, and actually they're not getting it so they're becoming dissatisfied? I think there are many politicians who are aware of these issues but like as like I've we've sort of identified today these issues are so multi-layered and the challenge we have is like a combination of like those clear metrics that we can all measure we're all familiar with like how many people are getting sick admissions to hospital beds available but also cultural attitudes and less tangible factors that intersect with those sort of more clearer health metrics that we're more familiar with I think like the fundamental like truth of of it is that you know in the lead up to the next general election politicians will just have to change and they will have to catch up especially those who are looking to make more of a progressive argument and they get they want to get the support and the vote of young people but more generally you know I think we speak a lot about young people but you know vulnerable people people who may just be like exhausted by like the lasting effects of COVID um, and the decisions that have been made prior to the pandemic that's made the pandemic so unequal uh, for many people young people and, and others included So I think it also means that politicians need to get quite serious about some of the more economic drivers of health. So like poverty is driving millions of people into depression. Um, So if we're serious about health, then we need to be like serious about the economy. I have seen some some efforts. For example, the health secretary has launched like a new elective recovery task force which is like modelled on the COVID vaccine task force, force, which was like quite effective. Mm. Um, And the Shadow uh, Secretary of Health sort of committing Labour to cutting those waiting times. And this is a great start. And I think it also shows like consensus across the political spectrum on some of the most urgent issues for health. But I think we, you know, we will have to be bold. Politicians will have to be bold and ambitious because, you know, it's our health and it seeps into every part of our life. You mentioned depression there. And, you know, we've we've seen that um, young people's mental health has declined during the period of the pandemic. You've done a lot of work yourself around mental health uh, provision and mental health needs for IPPR. What did you find out about the rise in the need for mental health support, particularly for, for young people? 
Yeah, so young people are getting sicker. We've seen a 74% increase in referrals for children and adolescents. And sadly, we're seeing like the nature of those referrals, uh, you know, being more extreme, for example, more cases of self-harm and eating disorders. And like early reports of sort of a rise in suicidal thoughts among sort of young people and children has sort of transpired into increased rates of sort of severe and more serious mental health problems. And in like the third quarter of 2020, our analysis showed that like hospital admissions for self-harm and assault in five to 14 year olds was like 25% higher uh, than expected uh, for that period. And of course, like this coincided with, you know, the school closures and the disruptions Mm. to, 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 to exams. And I think sadly, like these figures didn't surprise me. Years ago, like I worked for a young people's mental health um, organization where the issue of waiting lists for CAMs, so like children and adolescent mental health services, were having like a profound impact on on young people. And this impact was seen in like a sort of stark way for like that pre-adult teenage years, so like those sort of age 15 to 17. And this was because like the waiting lists were so long that those age 15 and up were not even put on those children and adolescent mental health uh, waiting lists. They were just moved onto adult mental health uh, services. And those, yeah, and those waiting lists, um, as the time that it would have taken them to actually wait on on, the, on those lists and see a professional, you know, they would have been of adult age by the time they can actually see someone. So, you know, young people growing up today, especially those with you know, complex needs or those needing like extra support, you know, they're already experiencing like how the backlog has interfered with their ability to get on and get help. And so, you know, this, you know, this has undoubtedly shaped their attitudes to health and the healthcare system. And, you know, when I've led on like participatory research, that's what I usually do, the kind of research like methodology that I take. And when I've um, been doing that around the country, when I would, you know, speak to people about their health, there would, for older generations, there would often be like a nostalgia of like having a family doctor mm. or the doctor that like gave you your first vaccine. You know, that's the same doctor that you might go to when you start a family of your own. I think that young people are less likely to have that kind of nostalgia of the NHS you know, the relationships that, you know, may have been normal years ago that, you know, you know, your GP, you know, your midwife, you know, your nurse, you know, that's, that's different. Um, you know, I'm a young person, I've been at sick and points of my life where I've been in hospital on one day and seen around five doctors in that very day. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that was just, you know, a normal part of being in hospital. And of course, you would, you would understand it's due to them being busy, changing shifts, but I, I just a, a normal part of kind of like how care is given uh, in, in today's age. That's true. I, I, I've had two children. I don't think I saw the same midwife twice at any point during those two periods. <laughs> I certainly didn't recognise the people who delivered them on the day. That's such a significant shift. What does recent kind of attitude polling suggest about how all of this, as you've described it, is playing out in terms of people's attitudes towards the future of the NHS? Do you think people know what will, is going to happen to the, the NHS? Do you think they have a strong view about what they want from it? for it still to be free and still to be there? Yeah, I mean, attitude polling is complex. Like, as, as, as we mentioned, like, people are 
losing their trust in the NHS. But I don't think people are losing the trust in the principles in which the NHS was like founded. Like I, there is like almost like near like universal public support for like retaining that universal free comprehensive and like tax funded NHS. You know, the polling that we published last year just showed like a consensus of public support, you know, across uh, in- the income, across demographics, across political voting. Um, 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 you know, there was just general sort of support for those basic principles of the NHS as a system that sort of universalizes like the benefits of like of, of the best healthcare and shares the costs across the population. So, you know, people think that the NHS should be free at the point of delivery it, you know it should be for everyone that's here you know it should be funded through taxes so I think you know the lack of trust and confidence in the institution I think what we're seeing is the result of there being a lack of resources mm. and funding um, and people were feeling that and experiencing that uh, and you know everyone has an anecdote you know we've just shared two anecdotes of being in hospital or trying to get through to your GP and not having you know not not seeing the same person or not being able to access anyone um at all uh, for long periods of time but I think the the values of the NHS I think that gives people great hope and I think that is what people want to get back to I'm not sure that people necessarily um, uh, know what the NHS will be in the future but I think they have a a clear sense of the values and the principles that underpin it and that is a you know a sense of uh, pride I think that you know almost People feel very passionate about um, this institution really being looked after, after and been able to deliver its service in a way that um, sort of upholds its values and um, that it was intended uh, to, to uphold when it was created 75 years ago. So what would it take to get the NHS to a place where people felt, you know, confident in it again? Would it be that you'd need to invest uh, the sort of money we did um at the point that it was established to to create a complete reinvention of the service or or can it actually be saved with just um, an increase in the funding from government uh, as is now? So I think it can work with just like an increasing funding from government. But I think the difficulty is, is that we've seen an increase in the NHS in funding over these past pandemic years. Like there has been even more funding to the NHS over the past three years because of the pandemic. And yet still, it still needs a lot more funding. Um, So like I said before, like we will need to be a lot more ambitious. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to go back to uh, the, the full inception of a new institution. I think we have like the grounding principles of an institution and many parts of the NHS work. Um, I'm not necessarily in the kind of mindset that we need to, you know, uh, say that the NHS needs kind of like radical change in, from, from, from at its core. There are lots of things about the NHS that do work. Uh, so I just want to be mindful of making sure that I'm not sort of uh, speaking negatively about the institution as a whole. There are lots of parts of it that do work, um, but it, it can't just be that we're funding it in the same way that we are now. It might be the way that we're funding it. Um, it might be who we give money to. It might mean also, you know, devolving health um, as well at more, even more local levels. Um, so it, it, it's a part of how much we fund, but also in the in the way that we fund the NHS. I mean, that's an interesting one for where it leaves the opposition, isn't it? I mean, what policies are you, specific policies, I mean, do you expect to be coming out of Keir Starmer's team around the NHS in, in the coming months? 
Mm. I think we'll see like new approaches to reform. So like, so for example, like removing a lot of those measures, maybe some people might call them bureaucratic measures that make self-referral difficult. Uh, You know, often you have to go to your GP uh, to be referred somewhere. Um, And I think there might be some ideas coming out of opposition that are, are on giving people more options and agency to refer themselves rather than waiting on GPs. I think, you know, we, we have already seen um ideas put out on the use of the private sector to clear backlogs um and that was that you know that's a, a a policy idea that was you know used by the Blair and Brown governments and was considered largely quite successful um on clearing backlogs yeah and I think just generally a number of different policies that I think will essentially aim to get the NHS back to that idea of it being uh the envy of the world like it like it once was <laughs> I mean, the NHS has always been a, an election battleground and we're heading into a very significant general election in the next 18 months. Um, do you think it's still a defining election issue now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. I think, but people will need to see more than just that top line election catchy phrases. Um, you know, since the last election and the next one, we've had, you know, the pandemic. Um, and we've all seen how like the NHS needs that support to withstand future shocks. So, you know, I think recovery, for example, won't be enough for people. You know, we can't just sort of rectify and go back to pre-pandemic. Uh, people will want to see, a, you know, a more ambitious policy that sort of uh, outlines a, a health service that is fit for the sort of 21st century uh, needs of like, you know, modern Britain. Mm. Well, we'll be watching as all this unravels over the next 12 months and I'm hoping not to fall ill in the meantime, I suppose. Thank you so much for joining me, Afia. Thanks, Hannah. The Bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and want to make sure we can keep bringing you podcasts like this, then you can back us on Patreon. Just choose the amount you want to donate, and in return, you can listen to every show without ads. Plus, you can get early bird tickets to our live shows and other discounts. I'm Hannah Fern. Thank you for listening. Good news! Your favourite history nerds are back! Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Hannah Fern The producers were Jack Gerbertson and Alex Reese with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.